So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. My name is Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. And Derek Barris is producing today. Thank you, Derek. Remember that you can catch us on Apple Podcasts uh, subscription platform. We are on Twitter individually. We're on IG, Instagram collectively. We got our old account back. We did. Yeah. Yes, Conspirituality Pod. Right. We, we don't know why or how, but we're happy to see so many of our old friends there. And we're also on Patreon, uh, where we do live streams, we do extra deep dives, uh, we do listener stories, and we also should tell you that you can pre-order our book, which is published on June 3rd. 13th of this year. Uh, there's a link at the bottom of the show notes for this episode and every other episode. And you might have noticed a new format type episode from us popping up in our regular feed. We're calling it the Conspirituality Brief. Uh, just on Tuesday, I published an interview with Dr. Theslim Anali Virji, who teaches psychology and ethics here in Toronto. And we talked about whether Jordan Bloody Peterson should still be allowed to call himself a psychologist while his college reviews his practice of clinical Twitter harassment. Well, I mean, that's what I talked about. My guest was a little bit more diplomatic. Uh, but we're going to be doing these short reports on a more regular basis. Uh, allowing us to engage the news cycle in a more organized way and uh, to keep it brief as well. In Spirituality 136, Virtual Strongmen with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Where have all the strongmen gone? Long time scrolling. Where have all the strongmen gone? Long time ago. Where have all the strongmen gone? Gone to posting. Everyone. Oh, when will they ever turn off their phones? Not anytime soon. Trump on Truth Social, Modi on Instagram, Bolsonaro tweeting from a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Miami. Today, we're looking at the new strongmen at the top of our political circuses. According to our guest, strongman whisperer, historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat, they're of a new breed they're not the steampunk fascists of a hundred years ago. They're not Cold War autocrats installed by the CIA. These guys are posters. 
They do not need to seize the means of production. Their goal is to disrupt the production of meaning. My interview with Ruth Ben-Ghiat gives us a great opportunity to look at the strongman fetish in conspirituality and to rate the top male influencers in our book on a scale of 10 Gaddafis. So, Julian, we're recording as the dust is settling in Brasilia after 400 Bolsonaristas were arrested and locked up for storming and trashing the Capitol buildings under the pretense of protesting a stolen election. Where have I heard this before? Right. The the new, also former president, Lula da Silva, was inaugurated the week before, surrounded by a tableau of Brazil's diversity. Indigenous, Black, trans, uh, disability rights leaders all were there. In response to this vandalism, to this attack, he quickly federalized the city's policing to squelch it. He didn't let the rioters just get back in their pickups and drive back to Kentucky and hope the FBI didn't come knocking. He zip-tied them all. Then he goes to the press room and he says, these people we call fascists invaded the three powers. He's talking about the, the palace and the Congress and the judiciary buildings. Like real thugs, all these people will be found and will be punished. Democracy demands that people respect institutions, these vandals who might be called Nazis. So like Lula doesn't mince words, even though he often sounds on the verge of breaking into a Pablo Neruda poem. Now, the day before, Bolsonaro was photographed munching on a drumstick in a Miami KFC, looking a little green, maybe with long COVID. Uh, he'd actually fled 48 hours before his term concluded the week before, and Democrats are now calling for his extradition. But it looks like they might have to send an air ambulance because Reuters is now reporting that Bolsonaro has since been hospitalized with abdominal pain. So, Julian, you've got this great interview with historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat about strongmen coming up on the show. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about some distinctions she might make between January 6th, 2021 in Washington and January 8th, 2023 in Brasilia? We're watching the stuttering rise of neo-fascist movements around the world and they echo movements going back over a century, and they definitely inspire the conspirituality movement. But not all strongmen are the same, are they? You know, a lot of the analysis I'm, I'm seeing about what just happened in Brazil frames it as being influenced, uh, inspired uh, in the Trumpian style, yeah. denying losing the election and fomenting an indignant uprising against the new president. But that said... I think the more recent political history of Brazil and the reality on the ground is quite different than the U.S. And Bolsonaro's background as an army officer who had been accused in the past of planning terrorist actions whilst in the military does draw a strong contrast with Bonespur Donnie. Yeah, right. Yeah, but, but in Ruth Ben-Ghiat's book, Strong Men, she starts from a three-part historical delineation between the fascist takeovers of the 30s, like Mussolini and Hitler, and then the Cold War era military coups that we've touched on, in which the U.S. tended to back right-wing dictators so as to oppose the Soviets in a long list of Latin American, African, Middle Eastern, and Asian countries. And then that's followed by the more contemporary style of hijacking democracy using the authoritarian, the authoritarian tactics exemplified by, say, Silvio Berlusconi or Putin and, yes, Trump, 
And of course, Steve Bannon's dream party guest list, Orban, Bolsonaro, Meloni, Duterte, and other far-right figures who are not yet in power. But today, we're going to explore how conspiritualist influencers are themselves either channeling, emulating, or otherwise being themselves influenced by the strongman archetype. Yeah, we've known about this fetish for a long time, and it's not surprising given the soft authoritarianism of New Age philosophy and, you know, the century-long love affair that this whole subculture has had with cult leaders. Um, we, we have to remember that the Austin crew held a prayer meeting on the eve of the 2020 election with Mickey Willis reading a poem. It was his own. It wasn't Pablo Neruda. Uh, <laughs> J.P. Sears got a photo op with Trump, Lori Ladd, and... Elizabeth April called him a light worker. And when when Putin invaded Ukraine, the love and light crowd said that he was attacking bioweapons factories and he was disrupting child trafficking rings. Of course. And recently, the Anons are saying that Andrew Tate has been taken down by the deep state. Of course, he's staying that. He's, he's saying that too. Yeah, of course, he's such a threat to the established power structure, right? Absolutely, yeah. He threatens so many things. So, is the is the conspirituality strongman fetish really about wielding actual power in the world? Um, I mean, I think that's the thing that we're grappling with so often. And I want to refer to uh, Julian Field, especially through uh, QAnon Anonymous's Man Cave uh, series, who. I mean, he keeps making this great point that when Tucker Carlson and and other people um, tell men to tan their balls to get back at the man uh, to develop <laughs> higher T, um, he's not telling them to mount an armed revolt. He's not telling them to organize uh, in you know labor unions. He's not telling them to actually seize control of electoral politics. And that's because either Carlson doesn't believe that material solutions to problems are possible, or, um, you know, he's too comfortable to really commit to the revolutionary changes he says he wants or he uses as, as fodder for his audience. Yeah, he's telling men to tan their balls to get back at maybe the the trans. I don't know, or 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 at or at feminists, or yeah, at yeah. lower, or at wage depression, mm-hmm. or at environmentalists, or mm-hmm. yeah, to make a bold stand against uh, being being uh, metaphorically castrated. I guess, yeah. I mean, that's all on point commentary regarding you know the role that these people play. I, I do want to add uh, that with people like Matt Walsh and libs of TikTok rallying parents and religious fundamentalists to really vicious and incendiary anti LGBTQ moral panicry that Tucker is more than happy to amplify. They're all fine with the armed militia members showing up outside drag shows and they go to bat now, like immediately it's turned into something they don't even pause before they start rebutting the accurate analysis of how they contribute to stochastic terrorism as happened after the club Q attack. But as with January 6th, I think they contribute to the worldview that stokes the flames of right-wing domestic terrorism. But just as our conspiritualists have already shown, mere political agitation is not as monetizable as tapping into whatever the associated cultural vulnerabilities are 
And then these pseudoscience products and services can be framed as the solution. So to that end, the so-called crisis of masculinity that we seem to be hearing about a lot lately from the right, uh, it's something that strong men historically also exploit. And so it's right on track with supplement sales and the ball tanning gambit. Right. Even if the classic old school strongman would have nothing to do with supplements and ball tanning. I mean, they might, I suppose, but that wouldn't be their primary product. Their primary product would be the, the uh, an actual vision, an actionable, vi- actionable vision of a new nation. Yeah. I mean, much like Liver King is, is, is saying, look, I'm this manly man who's going to return you to the ancestral way of being. And the way we're going to do that is by eating all of this raw meat and animal organs. And oh, by the way, if you can't go hunting yourself, I've got these supplements that are the desiccated, you know, essence of these things that you can just buy from me and take. And then you could be uh then you can look like a dude who's on steroids the the most incredible thing to me about his shtick was how uh so many of his reels would be shot outside of his i don't know where he lives but some suburban home it's Mm. like san diego or something like that or it might be in arizona but he would just be sort of dragging the sort of um the sledge behind him on the sidewalk in this in this suburban yeah you know with with manicured trees and lawns and stuff like that it was so bizarre yeah i think he would even go down to like venice if if it's here in la he would go to the the boardwalk and and have that you know have that whole apparatus that he's working out with in in this very kind of performative way super weird well i took a tour through our galley, because we just handed in the last round of proofs for this book. Finally, Amazing, yeah. And uh, I wanted to take another look at all of the dudes that we've covered sort of through this lens. Now, I, I would say that the most toxic masculine machismo-wielding dudes on our beat are Tim Kennedy and Aubrey Marcus. Um, now, Kennedy, if people remember, is the how how would we describe him? He's like well, t- he's he's somewhat tangential, or or like he has just a a small overlap, right? Because he's he we know of him in this way because he was interviewed by J.P. Sears as Sears was beginning his spiral into becoming a full-blown red-pilled conspiritualist. He's a former uh, UFC fighter. He's a former military guy. He now does tactical training that people like uh, J.P. Sears are happy to avail themselves of to learn how to be sort of paramilitary dudes. Yeah, so they work out together and they talk about freedom and they talk about um, dangerous freedom and peaceful slavery. That's right. I mean, Kennedy is is, is aggro, he's armed. He doesn't really strike me as a leader. Let, let's say, too, we shouldn't leave out that he's the guy with the tactical van that was uh, showing up at the George Floyd protests ready to, to you know, snatch people off the street. Yeah, there was one sort of, um, I guess, uh, uh, insinuating Facebook mm-hmm. post that he put up that showed him loading up into an unmarked van and heading off to Portland. Fuck around and find out kind of thing. I, he strikes me as somebody who just loves the the flag and following orders a lot. And and that is not really sort of harmonious with the the strong man who loves to make their own rules. Um, I don't think that Kennedy is is too much into that. He strikes me as like super disciplined and, and ultimately obedient. Um, Aubrey Marcus can really strut and flex, but he also has to show how open his heart chakra is for his brand to fly. Like, he cannot lose the 
um, the the women from his wellness market thing. He has to be vulnerable. He has to talk about his butt, how his butthole hurts after a toxin <laughs> purge. Uh, he has to bow before the divine feminine that he sets up to objectify. He has to do like, you know, poetry and uh, to kind of like very very banal films right before the take that is most authentic of the poetry, he has to have one of his wives come and, and lay her hand on his chest, right? So that he can come from the heart. Yeah, let's, let's be accurate here. He's got one wife. Uh, <laughs> it's, but yes, his, his, partner, his partner comes and says, and says this, make it come from the heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he nods. And yeah, so that's, um, that's, that's, that's a very particular kind of strong man, strong man I think. Um, then there's J.P. Sears. Um, I mean, steroids and sucking up to Trump do not a strong man make, I don't think. Well, it's a strong man adjacent, right? I mean, I mean, the th- one of the distinctions I think we need to make here is that there are, there's, there's the, there's the lineage of eugenics, right? Of, of, uh, uh, Eugene Sandow and, and really being a strong man in a literal sense. And then there is the strong man, uh, dictator type who tends to actually be just like, just like the gurus who claim to be enlightened. They tend to all be completely undisciplined gluttons, uh, with, with, with just like indulging all of their appetites while projecting this image of being somehow the superior, uh, embodiment of masculinity. Yeah. I, I, I mean, going down the list, um, we have Mickey Willis as well. And, and I think that he'd like to be a strong man or strong man adjacent, but only if he was in charge of his own lighting. Sayer G, eh, pretty kind of nebbishy. And and even somebody like Keith Raniere, right? Like short, kind of nerdy, not good hair. He'd make a terrible fascist. Fascists don't use neuro-linguistic programming. They also don't wear knee pads while they're playing volleyball. (laughs) They don't. Then there's the mixed martial arts set, Joe Rogan. He's a, he's obviously a fighter. He's obviously well-trained. Uh, he would lose listeners, I think, if he used his muscle in some sort of aggressive way, if he assaulted people. There was recently this video of circulating of Dana White uh, slapping his partner, like assaulting his, domestically abusing his partner on New Year's Eve. I don't know if you saw it, but... Oh, yeah. I don't think Rogan could get away with that uh, culturally. So um, Rogan is kind of muted, I would say, as a strong man in the sense that his brand is based on dialogue, on parasocial warmth, or at least the appearance thereof, and and the attempt to at least not totally alienate women listeners. Now, we haven't on the podcast or in the book covered Andrew Tate uh, and his connection to conspirituality is tenuous. It's, there's only his delusion that he's escaping the matrix, mm-hmm. which I think is like inside out. I think he is the matrix mm-hmm. that people are escaping from. A lot of the reporting on this is still unclear. I think it's clear that he is a huge piece of shit. But um, in strongman terms, his vision of power is really just stunted at about 15 years old, right? It's like Bugatti's and porn. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not somebody who aspires to you know, change history. And 
while he views himself as coaching young men into alpha states, I don't think he really cares about them uh, beyond you know subscription money. Yeah, I mean, he's stuck at the at the notion that being a pimp is somehow cool, and right. uh, manipulating women is something he can make money off of by teaching other aspiring pimps how to do it in the new sort of digital economy of of online porn really grotesque. I don't think a Bolsonaro-type strongman will ever be lauded in conspirituality land. This is another sort of test. Mm -hmm. And I think this is because the demographic actually has a lot to protect. Most of the men that we cover on the podcast are just too interested in self-care, in self-preservation. This makes them risk-averse. And I also think that the hyper-individualism of the self-help project and this need to market aspirational strength will probably always just block the extreme risks that strong men actually have to take. Like, you know, Bolsonaro just spent his entire three or four years in power saying, fuck it, I'm going to get COVID eight times, then I'll have half my colon removed or whatever happened, and still I'll personally go out and chainsaw the Amazon you know, while chewing on a steak. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think we have to make a distinction here. You know, you, you we we talked at the top about it, and you suggested this idea of of sort of in, in a half tongue in cheek way ranking the strong men that we're going to talk about in terms of Gaddafi, right? As in, as, so Gaddafi is like the benchmark, and we're going to say how how many Gaddafis do we give each of these people? And I think in terms of uh, global leaders who are exemplifying the strongman archetype, there, there's a case to be made. We can say they're, they're better or worse. They're more uh, embodying of that archetype in some ways than in others. And some of them are throwbacks to an earlier era right. of what that kind of authoritarian power looks like. But the conspiritualists that we've been doing a rundown of right now, I think they, they rhyme with the populist, the right-wing populist trend that's that's rising, that has been rising in the world for the last 10, 15 years, in that they themselves are appealing to a fascist throwback to when men were men and women were women and we were pure, right? right. All of the stuff that, that we, we actually get into quite deeply in, in the first part of our book, they themselves are not aspiring to some kind of political power, but we can see that because of this affinity for that kind of romanticization of a, of a long lost sense of masculine purity or of back to the land spirituality, they therefore find themselves resonating with figures like Trump and able to get behind uh, a weird uh, um, affinity for someone like Putin or even Modi, right? Because it's it's just it's it's in the water somehow, right? Yeah, and and I I'm of two minds because on one hand, no, they don't really have political aspirations. Although I think we should keep our eye on Doctor Zach Bush mm-hmm. because if there's anybody who is well connected enough and probably mainstreamable enough, it would be him. Um, you know, they don't express political aspirations because the industry is narcissistic. Uh, yes. It doesn't really um, point itself towards any kind of collective action or the difficult work of party politics. Um, 
you know, the, none of these people are interested in building coalitions. They they want to they want to have affiliate networks, but they're not going to like do deep canvassing and try to convince people to you know vote. They want people to buy their shit. And it, but that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons we saw them slowly turning toward Trump in 2020 because it, it's sort of in an inevitable way because that's Trump. Trump is not interested in service. He's not interested in coalition building. He's not interested in ideology. Yeah. He's interested in taking being a reality TV show and a fortunate son real estate tycoon to the next level of power and influence and getting away with whatever the fuck he wants to get away with, right? Yeah. I mean, I, being of two minds, what I mean by that is is that like on one hand, the, these folks not having political aspirations gives me some kind of comfort. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, it I would imagine that given their widespread mainstream social media reach, it's almost as if the people that we cover soften up the center, center right, or the vaguely liberal population mm-hmm. uh, in in yet another sort of instance of well, this is just the way the world works, and 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 I suppose that you know self care really is the most important thing. They're part of a depoliticization project, right? Yeah, it's a depoliticization project. It's also a project of finding these transitive properties that can move across different categories, right? So so if if body sovereignty becomes the rallying cry of the anti-vaxxer and not living out of fear becomes a reason to reject quarantine measures, then it's not too big of a stretch to start saying, well, the woke agenda is really about imposing some kind of controlling ideology that makes us live in fear or that forces us to accept the victim playing of these minority groups, you know, whatever the the rationale becomes. One of the things that I was interested in figuring out is whether or not the people that we follow uh, have stomach for people who are sort of not really coherent with the new age part of the right wing agenda like Bolsonaro. So I searched the telegram accounts of Northrop, uh, Magenta Pixie, JP Sears, Bernard Gunther, uh, Stella Emanuel, Bauhaus wife, Del Bigtree, Amber Sears, you went the whole deep. team. You went deep. I went deep. No mentions of Bolsonaro, none whatsoever. Many of these folks have posted favorably about, uh, Putin. Um, and not even the QAnon accounts that I follow on um, Telegram seem interested in Bolsonaro. So there's a QAnon Plus channel with 44,000 followers. They haven't posted about Bolsonaro since um, since uh, the 23rd of December. QAnon Warriors channel, 56,000. No posts about Bolsonaro. QAnon Fighters, 59,000. No Bolsonaro. The only influencer, he deserves a medal, I think, for posting in favor of Bolsonaro, who's in our sort of milieu, we've covered him before, is David avocado wolf he's the only bolsonaro fan uh who has been featured on our podcast uh there he is in telegram cheering on the riders and so my unscientific hot take is with regard to strongmen conspirituality folks fantasize about violence but not too much violence I think it's a movement that needs its authoritarians to perform strength more than to exert it. And to me, this suggests that 
they're not really that dissatisfied with the status quo. Like everybody wants a revolution, but these guys really want to make it happen through supplements and ball tanning and reciting Course in Miracles. Well, you know, everybody wants to change the world. Yeah, I, I, I'm picturing what kind of medal we might give David Avocado Wolf. It's giving me some funny images in my mind. But right. you know who was uh, publicly cheering on the writers as well is Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon tweeted out a picture and and uh, of what was going on in Brasilia with the caption, Freedom Fighters. Right. Uh, so he's very, you know, and, and, and obviously we know that he has ties to Bolsonaro. He has ties to uh, uh, De Cavallo, who's sort of like the, the uh, Dugan figure in Brazil, who's part of that traditionalist uh, religious stream that Benjamin Teitelbaum told us about. Right. But speaking of sunshine and tanning, there was an interesting wrinkle, if you'll excuse the term, in the unfolding story of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's using authoritarian tactics to fuel his presidential ambitions. We know about his cruel anti-immigrant stunt of flying 48 migrants from San Antonio, Texas, to Martha's Vineyard after having cruelly lured them onto the planes with brochures and false promises of work and easy immigration papers. That's amazing. By the way, yeah, and by the way, allegedly spending over $600,000 of taxpayer money to do so, which he's being investigated for, as well as DeSantis's don't say gay and anti-CRT in schools legislation and his recent anti-woke speech. This is all red meat to the base. But this new development uh, pricking up our ears is that DeSantis appointed a certain Brett Weinstein to something called the Public Health Integrity Committee, which of course sounds totally legit, right? Right. This announcement in early December was a little overshadowed by DeSantis, who had previously celebrated COVID vaccines and bragged about the high vaccination rates in his state but now calling for a grand jury investigation into what he called wrongdoing on the part of pharmaceutical companies and government officials who promoted those same vaccines. Wow, no, I missed that. So he's actually, he's actually, okay, so now he's investigating mm -hmm. pharmaceutical companies because vaccines have killed people in Florida and not his own policies. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. He's also tasked the Florida Surgeon General with investigating cases of people dying suddenly, which of course must bear no uh, relationship to the <laughs> to the schlock anti-vax documentary. That, that flip actually is quite strong, Manny, uh, to yep. not just sort of like if, avoid the issue of your own incompetence in COVID response, but then to go on the attack and to and to actually, yeah, that's that's pretty bold. Yeah, okay. yeah. We've always been at war with East Asia, right? It's it's the uh, I'm for vaccines. Yes, aren't, aren't we great? I've done such a good job. Oh, hold on a second. They're going to be a, there's going to be a grand jury investigation because some heads need to roll about the fact that these vaccines are obviously killing people. Right. But what of this overshadowed public health integrity committee? Well, it's made up of seven people. And of course, it has a well-tuned balance of epidemiologists, vaccine researchers, and science communicators. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry, right. that, that's not right. It's made up of seven individuals who are all either involved in the Brownstone Institute, which was founded in 2021 to oppose COVID restrictions and promote anti-vax rallies and endorse disproven cures, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So unless they're involved with the Brownstone Institute, they're affiliated with the Great Barrington Declaration, 
which is a widely criticized open letter advocating lifting quarantine measures and pursuing a three-month herd immunity strategy. This was published in October 2020 by, uh, by the American Institute for Economic Research. Now, that is a libertarian think tank that's also involved in climate science denial. Uh, also something that Florida needs. Yeah, absolutely. We won't break down the entire committee today, but Weinstein is joined by people like Jay Bhattacharya, the Stanford professor of medicine who's also worked as an economist at RAND and the Hoover Institution, both conservative organizations. He was one of the three main authors of that great Barrington Declaration. Other members include a mix of doctors and researchers like Christine Stabel-Ben and Joseph Fryman, who both argue that COVID vaccines are very dangerous and ineffective, as well as Stephen Templeton and Stacey Beth Hogue, who are opposed to masking and other attempts to mitigate infection rates. Now, as for Brett Weinstein's qualifications and why he should be on this committee, it's really hard to say. He did just recently make a return visit to Joe Rogan podcast, so maybe that's what qualifies him. After being himself the vector for infecting Joe's listeners with the anti-vax pro-ivermectin triple-demic of Pierre Corey, Robert Malone, and Peter McCulloch. So amongst other things, on this recent visit, Weinstein and Rogan actually spent 11 minutes discussing what turned out to be a fake tweet that they thought showed just how nasty and hateful pro-vaxxers are, with Joe taking a moment to explain very earnestly to Brett that as a result of his podcast gig, he's become completely immune <laughs> to bullshit. Like, he can just okay. smell it a mile away. Okay, so, but, but the tweet didn't happen. The, the tweet actually was fabricated. And, and there were there were many obvious things about the tweet that meant that it couldn't possibly have been a tweet, like it was too many characters. Can you imagine if we spent 11 minutes talking about something that didn't happen to an audience of like how many million people? Oh, I think he gets about 11 million per episode. And, and just like breaking it down in detail psychologically about what this showed about the person who made this tweet. Um, amazing. I would be so ashamed. I would, I would go into, I would go into, um, like the ice bath for a very, very long time. I wouldn't come out. I think he may have done that. And to his credit, Joe Rogan did, you know, tweet something saying we made a mistake and and we do apologize. Oh, good. But look, that's great. Bottom line here, Brett's appointment by DeSantis to this ridiculous committee could actually endanger both public health and public health officials due to he and his esteemed associates' inability to distinguish misinformation from actual science. Okay, but let's get back to our theme. Like, what kind of strongman vibes do you get from DeSantis? I mean, I I get the sense that he is ideologically ruthless. Um, he's managerial. He's going to work any angle he can flex. But there's also something like awkward and fragile and socially inept about him. I mean, if he is charismatic for some people, it's it's in a Ben Shapiro sense of like always having something acerbic to say, uh, always trying to look sure of himself. Mm-hmm. And then teaming up with Weinstein is is not a strongman move uh, because it shows that he's ready to capitulate to to intellectuals, even if they're pseudo intellectuals. Yeah, and that's what anyone invested in culture war topics like has to do. Um, and then Weinstein himself has like pretty low strongman points, especially with the hat. Like I, I'd give uh, DeSantis three out of 10 Gaddafis. Uh, I'd give Weinstein one. Well, look, I mean, if we think about the, the, the big uh, grandpappy of all of this, Mussolini, um, I, I don't know that he was necessarily not 
awkward and fragile and socially inept. The the sticking yeah. out of the jaw that became his kind of characteristic move, it's all very, to anyone who has any kind of uh, empathic intuition or relational intelligence, it's very obvious what you're seeing. You're seeing someone who's over massively overcompensating. Just like with Adolf <laughs> Hitler, you were seeing someone who was hopped up on amphetamines and with a small man complex, just like frothing at the mouth. Right. So I, I don't know that... that uh, what we would think about as confidence and you know genuine charisma it's not like these people are elvis presley or something you know they're they're they're, they're all like pretty pretty strange characters pretty odd characters who probably wouldn't be at the top of the pecking order were it not for some sort of sleight of hand authoritarian magic trick that they'd figured out how to enact yeah i think we do well i hear a lot of people on the left saying ah desantis will crumble on the national stage i think we do well not to under not to uh, overlook that he has uh he he's he went to yale he's he went to harvard law he's an ex-navy lieutenant uh, the favorite—he's uh, he, the favorite of the gang of misfits who just held McCarthy hostage for 15 rounds of voting on the House floor. I mean, of course, they're loyal to Trump, but some of them have publicly said uh, they, they think DeSantis is the the next guy. He's also in these moves that we've just been discussing, using the machinery of government to do strongman theater and creating pseudo scientific alternative facts committees is par for the propaganda game of authoritarians. I don't think he goes full Gaddafi, but he's more than happy to rub elbows with Meloni and Orban, right? He had Meloni come to, to CPAC when it right. was in Florida. He's more than happy to rub elbows with those folks, and he has reportedly invited libs of TikToks uh, right-wing homecoming <laughs> queen, <laughs> Chaya Rychik, to stay in the governor's mansion anytime she's in town. I mean, she was basically, you know, fanning herself on Tucker Carlson at how how honored she felt and how she was blushing at this invitation. You know, Julian, I'm really glad that we're going to cut to the interview now because I'm just finding <laughs> myself very confused and I want to hear from a proper historian about who the fuck the strongmen are and uh, what they do. So, it's great. I've, I, by the way, listeners, I've heard it. It's, it's fantastic. Stay tuned. We turn now to my interview with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a scholar on fascism and authoritarian leaders. I asked her about all of that, as well as how it overlaps with our topics here on the podcast. Her book is titled Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Ben Giat, thank you so much for joining us on Conspirituality. It's a pleasure. Your book is titled Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, and it's about authoritarian power. You cover a rogues gallery of dictators in an intersecting analysis of their tactics and psychology. So people like Mussolini, Hitler, Gaddafi, Mobutu, and Pinochet. Tell us just off the top here, what are the characteristics of a strongman leader? So I, I see strongmen as a subset of authoritarians. And if we want to define authoritarianism, it's really at its most basic, um, a liberal political system where the executive overwhelms the other branches. And in my book, um, I, I have case studies of uh, these I call them personalist rulers. That's a kind of political science category. And these are people who um, 
their personal, financial, legal, and other needs, ideological obsessions come to set the, the nation's policy. It's all about them, right? So that's one, um, that's one criteria I used in picking um, who I featured. The other is um, the kind of use of machismo, um, and masculinity as a kind of tool of political legitimacy. So it's not just, you know, Mussolini and Putin are stripping their shirts off and we can laugh at that. It's when um, masculinity, that kind of toxic masculinity, um, how it intersects with corruption and violence and propaganda to become what I call a tool of rule. So the strongman is somebody who consciously uses that. And so those were, those are the things that I um, decided um, constituted the strong man. Yeah. I, I want to come really close to home at first here. You, you set the following scene really well. This is toward the end of the book and it's during the George Floyd protests. Uh, it's the weekend of May 29th, 2020. There are military helicopters buzzing racial justice protesters around the white house. 5,000 national guard troops have been summoned. There are other heavily armed personnel with no discernible, uh, uniform insignia who are doing, you know, things in the crowd on that Monday. Trump denounces the protesters in a televised address from the Rose Garden. He then threatens to use the U.S. military against what he calls professional anarchists and violent mobs. Then there's that extraordinary scene of the flashbangs, the tear gas, the mounted police being used to clear Lafayette Park so that he can stride through it. I just watched the video again. He has an entourage of guys in black suits behind him, like various allies from, from the government. Uh, you know, for a lot of that walk, they're like 10 feet behind him. And then he stages that now infamous photo op, sort of awkwardly holding up a Bible in front of St. John's Church. And he's, the, the reporters are a fair distance away and they're sort of yelling questions. And his only answer is, we have the greatest country in the world. So I know that Donald Trump is clearly not quite in the league of some of the other figures in your book. But to what extent does the authoritarian strongman Venn diagram overlap with what we saw from Donald Trump. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you isolated that moment. So, so the book is, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was show how authoritarianism evolves over a century. So it's not a work of comparative politics. Um, I'm a historian, I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not comparing Trump with Hitler. Although, you know, the chapters are structured so that like, uh, the tools of rule go over a hundred century, sorry, sorry, over a hundred years. So you can see what's changed and what stayed the same. And for sure, uh, Trump is a superb propagandist and he uses the, some of the same techniques that fascists use. But today things work a bit differently. You have, you know, you keep elections going. Um, you don't have as often outside of communism, a one party state, the impulses and personality of somebody like Trump are autocratic. And Trump was different from any other president of either party because he's, his goals were autocratic goals. Um, he wanted to make money off the presidency. He wanted total control. And he had no regard whatsoever for human life. And so that scene um, where he, having studied uh, the Cold War military dictatorships, Pinochet's Chile was my example, where the military is turned on the population 
and terrorizes and tortures. And when I saw what he was trying to do, it was a combination of, you know, co-opting the military, he had them parade with him, and General Milley later regretted it, as did uh, Defense Secretary Esper, and also the psychological warfare of the unmarked um, troops. These he he get it's very diabolical gathering together all these um, uniformed people who nobody like the post office had you know like these these troops that nobody knew pr- practically existed and gathering them all there unmarked it is a very um, smart psychological warfare. Uh, mechanism, arraying them as a spectacle. That was a very fascist thing that he did there. And then, you know, his attitude towards protesters and at other occasions, he said, you just shoot them in the legs, you know, you shoot them. He he truly has um, an autocrat's um, view of how you should treat dissenters. Um, you just do away with them. You And he used his rallies from the beginning of his campaign in 2015 to... Um, to kind of seed the idea in his followers that protesters should be roughed up, should be treated with violence. And so there's a direct, there's a direct line of him radicalizing people through his rallies and throwing out protesters to what happened in 2020. But there we have the attempt, a very um, authoritarian attempt to use the military on the domestic population. And so I wasn't alone when he had the helicopters buzzing uh, protesters and people, journalists and uh, diplomats and people who had served in authoritarian contexts, they were calling out on Twitter, oh, this is looking like X regime. And so that that was a very um, telling moment. Yeah, that is that is really noteworthy that people who are familiar with what other authoritarian rulers had done, were noticing this is different. This and and this is this is uh, indicative of that kind of style. You know, it makes me think about how this is something that we cover on this podcast a lot. How central to the QAnon conspiracy theory was this sort of prophesied climax in which the blood drinking satanic pedophile cabal of Democrats and Hollywood elites would be publicly executed. And even as all of the QAnon predictions failed one after another and January 6th then didn't lead to Trump being reinstated, some QAnon influencers were still actually live streaming Biden's inauguration in the hope that it would culminate in a righteous military coup and summary executions that, of course, would be televised. So I'm just curious to ask you, do do you think that these kinds of preoccupations uh, in the MAGA supporters are indicative of them actually longing for a kind of authoritarianism? Are they being programmed to want that by the, the way Trump uses propaganda? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. In a way, um, there's lots of there's research showing that, for example, Karen Stenner um, showed that in the States, about 30% of the population is has authoritarian impulses, which are normally expressed in non-political realms, like how they view parenting, how they view hierarchies in society. Many of them, let's say, you know, male authority must be absolute, and they can get activated 
if the time is right. And here we have, I, I call it the meeting of personality and circumstance. And it happens over and over from Mussolini's the first, where there's a, there's a situation in society and often, and this happens over and over, it's when um, society has gone through a lot of social progress quickly, or it's perceived as quick. It could be workers' rights, it could be racial emancipation, gender equity. And it makes, let's say, in a European-American context, white males very uncomfortable and white people in general. And we had eight years of Barack Obama, uh, who you know, admitted women to combat, legalized same-sex marriage. So we were ripe for this. And so in those circumstances where people feel that the ground is slipping under their feet and they don't like what's happening, a demagogue can appear. In this case, it was Trump. And what Trump knew how to do, because he was a marketer, and a lot of these guys are either um, journalists, mass communications, they come from TV, they know how to scan the marketplace, political marketplace, and offer themselves as a solution. And they see there's a void of people who are not being um, fulfilled by the current offerings in politics and can be radicalized. And that was, Trump was like, you are the forgotten, but you're forgotten no longer. I will save you. I will. And he elevated them. He told them he loved them. He made them feel special. And that's what, you know, the fascists did with veterans. So there's, there's over and over in, in history that this happens. And, and so in that sense, these are people who are primed in a way to um, follow a demagogue. And then some of them are just like fulminated by the charisma, by the communicative skills of these men. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is important that a lot of them have a background in journalism or um, TV because they speak to, they use media in a different way than other kinds of politicians. They have these direct, unmediated channels through rallies. Um, they all know how to use the latest media technologies, like Mussolini had newsreels and Hitler was screaming with the radio. Modi used holograms and he, used, he Instagrams his life. You know, Trump had Twitter. Um, and so they present themselves and they dialogue with followers in a different way. And so all of this <laughs> leads people to be, get swept up into this feeling of bonding with the leader in a way that's totally different than other kinds of politicians. Yeah, it's it's so deeply related to um, a theme that we come back to again and again on the podcast, which is charismatic influence and how you know we we deal a lot with um, conspiracy theorists who who gather or actually people who prior to COVID had gathered really big audiences as wellness influencers or as yoga teachers or as spiritual leaders of some kind, and then through the course of COVID they got more and more radicalized, more and more political, more and more on the conspiracy um, track, and how that that cap capacity to use media in such persuasive ways and to build a cult of personality around how they're communicating so there seems to be so much overlap there with authoritarian leaders i wanted to ask you um if if it's generally part of the strongman playbook to rely on propaganda and conspiracy theories and if so 
does the exponential impact of the technology that we now have available through the internet and social media, does it smooth the road to authoritarian power? Yeah, it's like it soups up these dynamics that are old dynamics. And that's why, um, believe me, it would have been a lot easier to have this book just be uh, biographies, you know, so one chapter on Mussolini, one chapter on Hitler. But I wanted to do it structured by the tools of rule so that the propaganda chapter you see you know, it goes from the 20s, 1920s to 2020. And you see that conspiracy theories, victimhood complexes, um, rallies, again, what we were talking about, the charismatic ruler, they've stayed the same. But when you get to um, social media age, this, the circular, some of the, well, let's put it this way, propaganda, social media uh, accelerates certain fundamental um, principles of propaganda. And one is repetition. And ideally, you have to have the same message repeated with small variations, which we call like now segmentation of audience, right? But the Nazis did this. They called it synchronization, that all the different areas of, of life, the schools, and they all had the same message, but in slightly different forms for different audiences. So you see how social media hugely, you know, soups this up. The other is that, you know, in old days, you would have a newspaper um, and you would consume the news and you would see, let's say, Mussolini, he would make a speech and then it was in the newspaper and then it became a graffiti on a building, like official graffiti. So it, it circulated and you had like the equivalent, you could say, of memes, but people were not also producers. So here, every time we share and we add an emoji or we add a meme, we are not only consuming propaganda, but we're putting our own twist on it. And so all of this makes the destructive elements of radicalization, cult dynamics, they all work um, far faster. And I've been very concerned uh, about uh, Trump, who's, again, he's one of the most skilled propagandists of our times. People always laugh when I say that, but he, he truly is. Where he is now, um, because he's not in the best of, uh, you know, his popularity is declining, he's taken some hits. So he's reaching out to the QAnon people. And how smart is that? If you think the way, if, you, if you're immersed in these guys uh, far too long, you take a, an existing cult and you try and transfer their loyalties onto you. That's, that's pretty smart. So I think, I don't know if he's going to continue to do that. I know Michael Flynn is a very dangerous individual also doing his part. And he's still allied with Trump. But you have to have the dynamism too. Um, you have to have new audiences uh, discovering you. So I'm worried about that intersection of Trump and QAnon right now. Yeah, me too. I, I wanted to mention uh, perhaps a slightly tangential um, reference point, but maybe it'll it'll uh, resonate with you. If Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death. And in this book, he has a chapter where he posits cult leaders as gaining a kind of charismatic power in front of the group by violating taboos, 
by showing that he's unafraid to, to do things that they would be afraid to do. He's, he's, he psychologically describes it as they're, they're communicating an immunity from the fear of death that everybody else has from existential anxiety. Uh, you write about the strongman as simultaneously positioning themselves as men of the people, ordinary guys just like you, right? But also as special men who can do whatever they want and get away with it. Do you see that as having cult-like overlaps as well? Oh, totally. I have a quote uh, by Becker from a different book in, in, in Strongman. Um, the essence of authoritarianism is getting away with it. And when Trump, uh, you know, the biggest red flag there ever was, end of January 2016, when Trump said, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I won't lo- wouldn't lose any followers. And he was saying... He was capable of violence, so the transgression, and that he was above the law, and that he'd be loved, loved, because, and, and, and people would be devoted to him because he is transgressive. It was all there. And extraordinarily, and I was following this very closely and very uh, upset about this, within the two weeks after he gave that speech, um, the the GOP courtship of him um, like accelerated and Jeff Sessions endorsed him. And then Jimmy Fallon at, uh, invited him onto his show and like tussled his hair. So he had the media, he had the GOP. So, yeah. you know, what bigger red flag could there have ever been that this was an authoritarian personality saying that he was going to, you know, elicit violence and be loved for violence and breaking the rules. So the cult, the man who is above all other men uh, is extremely important. And every successful authoritarian has this dual thing with their cult of personality. They, they have to be relatable. They are the man of the people. In fact, you know, even, and it, this crosses into communism, of course, Xi Jinping, like literally they're, tweeting all the time, Chinese state media, that he's the man of the people. Mm. And yet he's also, of course, above everybody else. Um, And they are too powerful to be uh, sanctioned by anyone. So, and this is also why um, January 6th, so if if you have that reputation, you're the cult leader. If if your followers think that you are in uh, grave danger, they become very volatile and they can be manipulated. So January 6th, it was many things. There were many people involved in it, many cons- you know, conspirators. But it was a rescue operation of a cult leader by the followers. And he called them and he said, please, you know, uh, help stop the steal. And the, what was the steal? The steal was his reputation, his and if you don't fight back, you're not going to have a country anymore. It was oblivion without me. So it all worked very well. And off they went and we know the rest. I feel like as we, as we continue for these last few questions, um, we're going to be in this realm of, of uh, par- paradox is sort of the, the gentle way of saying it, right? It's, it's hypocrisy. It's, it's just r- ridiculous kind of uh, upside down reasoning. P- a populism, I think, advertises itself as being an anti-elite movement of the people, yet you write about how elites will often buy into what the populist 
or, or faux populist, we might say, uh, authoritarian leader is selling, and you call it the authoritarian bargain. Tell us about how that functions. Yeah, I don't use um, the category of populist much because ah. um, so many times there are populist parties that, that have been very important. But what happens almost every time, Brexit was a perfect example. These, the, or, or Matteo Salvini's League Party, which en- ended up it's taking money from Putin. Or, or what was Brexit? Brexit was also funded by kind of dark money and billionaires. And, and so it's a faux populism half the time. It, it's very sad. It's, this is, you know, modern disinformation, when, and this is the Kremlin information warfare playbook. The key is to get people to act against their own interests. But they think they're doing it in the name of the people. So Brexit was just a terribly tragic example where people were uh, misled and things were done for the benefit of elites. And yet it was presented as uh, a liberation, a, you know, sovereignty, all this stuff. Um, and there are many, many other examples where uh, secessionism, all the things that the, that the Kremlin is, is fostering. Um, so there there can be populist movements that are authentic, but with the right-wing populists, all, all, all too often they are allied with very powerful interests and taking money secretly from those powerful interests. And um, look at Trump. He presented himself as a populist, and he was you know, indebted to uh, Russia and China, you know, heavily leveraged of loans from Russia and China and money investments from them. So what kind of populist is that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I've, I've noticed about this current wave of strongmen, because you talk about them in a few different phases. So if we talk about Putin, Orban, Bolsonaro, Duterte, Trump, most recently, uh, Meloni, who I want to ask you more about a little bit later, is, they all seem to recognize one another. It's kind of like they're crime bosses in their separate territories who are, they have these, uh, these sort of uneasy alliances, but there's also a twinkle in the eye about like how we're really getting away with something here. Uh, you talk about in an, in an odd historical twist how Muammar Gaddafi, who became the 42-year running dictator in Libya, uh, and, and that Libya had been a, a former Italian colony under Mussolini, but then later, Silvio Berlusconi comes to power and he finds a way to form an alliance with Gaddafi and famously embraces him publicly. More recently, I'm thinking of that really diabolical, exuberant handshake between Putin and MBS at the 2018 G20 summit, while Trump was sort of like almost looking on in the background like, like the fool they were playing him for, I, that is how I interpreted it. How, how do you make sense of these sort of international alliances between these types of figures? Yeah, I wanted to have a whole chapter called Partners that there just wasn't room for it the way the structure ended up being. But the key, for, the key to understand those things is that these, are, these strongmen are entirely transactional beings, opportunistic and transactional. They have no moral code. They have no respect for anything but power and money. And so they will ally with anyone. So that, you know, it's the same as when we are talking before about um, finding devoted followers. They will say anything to anyone. They will be what you need them to be. And in uh, power relations, they will 
do whatever the deal is they need to do at that moment. And so you get also the Hitler-Stalin pact, then that didn't go very well. You get, you know, uh, Mussolini and, and Hitler, and then Hitler invades Mussolini. You get Putin and Erdogan, who they're, they're best friends, and then they're like almost going to war. You know, it's just, that's, that's how these guys are. It, and it's kind of, um, it's why you should never appease them. There's a lot of lessons like for, you know, dealing with Putin now, and you also can never expect them to negotiate in good faith. Um, but it's also why they're chaos agents, because they're not, they will just change and do the opposite of what they were doing before if it suits them. There, there's an enduring trope in the MAGA lexicon that I know you're familiar with. It's, it's of the corrupt deep state. And the deep state has, a, has a, a leftist agenda. But we know that Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney were involved in the White House all the way back to the Nixon and Ford administrations, even though they, they'd rise to their strongest influence during uh, George Bush II uh, in his eight years as president. And then on a related note, you write about how Roger Stone, whose CV also goes back to Nixon, and Paul Manafort headed up an infamous political lobbying firm in the 1980s. Talk about deep state and deep involvement over you know, multiple administrations. Who did Roger Stone and Paul Manafort work for? And, and why does this matter in terms of understanding their, their leverage with Trump? So I, who, who come to American uh, politics and studying global things, I didn't know this until I uh, researched the, the Trump part of the book that the people, and it alarmed me, the people Trump had around him had been uh, wrecking democracies and trying to take down democracies for decades. He had this team of people, you know, uh, in the for foremost, uh, Robert Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, who uh, had a lobbying firm um, that was known as one of the torture. It was in this, like, uh, known as one of the torturers lobbyists because they worked for dictators. And this is so relevant to what uh, ended up happening in our country in January 6th. Their, one of their first big jobs was uh, they were hired by Ferdinand Marcos, the Philippine dictator, because he was not doing well uh, and he tried to have a corrupt snap election in 1985. And so they were hired to oversee this fraudulent election that was going to like deliver him a big victory and um, then he would be on a better footing. And it didn't work, but that's how long they've been doing election fraud. And then, you know, Manafort worked for Putin, right? So these are the people he had around him, as well as Bannon, who's, uh, you know, a kind of psychological warfare operative, uh, far right operative who loves every dictator he's ever heard of. Um, and that really disturbed me because there's this there was this fiction always that Trump was just a clown. The same thing people used to say about Hitler and Mussolini, that Trump doesn't know what he's doing, um, that he just makes it. And they do make it up as they go along to some extent, because they're opportunists. They're always looking for the best angle for what benefits them. But there's also, this is what was frustrating to me, uh, you know, during the Trump years, so people did not see the danger because they had professionals around them who had years of experience doing exactly what, you know, how to wreck a democracy. 
that's that's who he had around him. Michael Flynn, who's again, he's one of the most dangerous people in America because he unites, you know, military, psychological warfare, QAnon, Christofascism. These are the people he has around him and the people who he elevated after he lost the election. Um, to do to try and pull off this coup, and they'd been doing this. They were ready for this. <laughs> they'd been doing this stuff for like forty years. Yeah, yeah. And if we don't know that, we we think it's just even today. Some people, you know, you hear them say, "Well, Trump is just a blunderer," and, and so is January six didn't work out. It's like no, I mean, it didn't work out, but he had professionals around him, and it almost worked. Yeah, that these if, if we take. Bannon, Flynn, Manafort, and uh, and Stone. It's like they they'd been. This is what they'd been training for their whole lives to get into this kind of position with Trump. Yeah. And then and then you have Bannon at CPAC right after Trump gets elected, talking about how he's there to to dismantle the administrative state. That there are these buckets of work that need to be done in order to advance basically his agenda. Um, Really extraordinary, and and then of course all four of the people that we've just been talking about were um, convicted and jailed, and then pardoned by Trump. When you when you look at the patterns of history, it's very disturbing because um, Mussolini ended up pardoning all the the black shirt thugs who beat up and killed you know socialists and progressive priests. As soon as he declared dictatorship, he had like an amnesty for all these like thugs. And Pinochet, he not only pardoned uh, human rights abusers, but this is like totally diabolical. He pardoned people who were concealing the human rights abuses in the bureaucratic record. So he pardoned the concealers. And then here comes Trump and he's pardoning people. And of course, promising pardons is a way to get people to do stuff as part of the corruption. No, I said we'd come back around to Giorgia Meloni, uh, recently elected prime minister in Italy. Uh, I noticed so many masculine reference points in her campaign. Perhaps you did too. Is, is she the first female strongman leader? Can we say that? I would say that um, it, in, the, in the conclusion of strongman, I, I said that it's inevitable we're going to have a female-led authoritarian state. And at the time, I was thinking of um, Marine Le Pen, but I was actually looking at my epilogue. There's a paperback edition from 2021 that covers January 6th, but I also update Putin and some other things. And there I mentioned Meloni. I singled her out because her party was rising. Um, But she is a very interesting figure because... You know, she's petite and blonde and she's doing her gender washing thing. I stand for women and and but she and she calls herself a conservative, but she is a hardcore neo-fascist. She's been a militant since 15 years old (laughs) and she absorbed. I'm going to write about this. She absorbed a lot of Mussolini's style and she's careful to have when she speaks to Italians now, especially since she's been elected, she's careful to seem reasonable, but I urge everybody. It doesn't matter if you don't know Spanish, find this, uh, this YouTube video of her talking, uh, to a far right party in Spain, the Vox party. She is screaming like I've only seen Mussolini and Hitler scream. 
and she's a demagogue and that's who she is. That's her essence. And she has, and, and she had to be this very tough woman to, um, make her way up in this neo-fascist party, which was intensely sexist and patriarchal. So she's a very, even more than Marine Le Pen, um, she's, she's a very tough uh, woman. And, and in original fascism, there was this idea of the virile woman. And of course, they used virile for the man because they didn't have another conceptualization. And she's like the virile fascist woman. It's super interesting. Yeah, the the the, the hearkening back with the, what is the slogan? Uh, the fatherland is in there somewhere. Uh, family, God, God, family, fatherland, something like that. And then and then renaming the party as brother. Is it brothers of Italy or brotherhood of Italy? Yeah, it's and she was one of the founders. And she tellingly, the symbol has a flame in it. And the flame is the original flame symbol of the original neo-fascist party founded like when fascism died, Mm. right? Then they had to keep it going. Mm -hmm. And unlike in Germany, they allowed a a, a legal neo-fascist party. And that flame, uh, some people, when they founded the party, it was like, I think, 2012, um, some people wanted to take the flame out to kind of whitewash it more. And she refused. She was the one who refused and said, no, we're keeping that flame in there. So that's who she is. Incredible. And it's extraordinary. And and when she was elected, you know, there were people here and elsewhere were saying, don't worry about it. You know, governments come and go and she's not going to really do much. And I was like, no, no, no. Because every experience of an extremist in power, uh, even if they don't last long, really changes the culture. Look what's happened in America. With Trump. Yeah, I noticed too that it, as she was sort of on her way to power, I was reading articles about her sort of defending of Orban or or the back and forth that there was some kind of in, initial sort of uh, willingness to run interference for one another. Can you tell us about that? An underappreciated um, thing is there are these very strong transnational uh, fascist or whatever we're going to call them, far right networks. And Orban uh, has made Budapest a hub of these networks. And one of his major clients is the GOP. And that's why they're trotting there all the time. They're having CPAC there. They're inviting him to come. And she is very, Maloney is also very close with Orban. And right before she was elected, she gave an interview to the Washington Post. And she said (laughs) that um, they asked her about the GOP and she said, well, we were basically, she said they're kindred spirit with her party and that their struggles are things that we talk about. And it's the same with Orban. And I have a, I have a newsletter, a Substack newsletter called Lucid. And I've written a number of articles about these uh, talking points about demography and race and that they recur. They're the same among her party, Orban, the GOP. Um, And you're going to see more and more of this kind of standardization of talking points. Um, And, and we, we Democrats in the world, we don't have anything comparable to spread our talking points the way that they do. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like the, 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 you know, the whole Francis Fukuyama thing that, that the 20th century had represented the sort of 
coming to fruition of the uh, the arc of moral freedom bending towards justice. Um, I think on the left we got a little perhaps complacent in the Western world that this there was an inevitability about it all. Yeah, I think so. And um, and he actually uh, reviewed my book in the New York Times in a, in a negative fashion, um, and and uh, including the the focus on leaders, and then just. In the last few months, he published something in The Atlantic where now he espouses all the things that, uh, including the focus on leaders <laughs> and that authoritarianism, hey, maybe it is really a problem. Um, he's decided uh, without acknowledging that I was right and he was wrong to criticize my book in this terrible way, which kind of uh, doomed its fortunes in some ways because I have a very different picture of history. I have a resistance chapter. And so that's very important to the book. Mm. And the book shows, you know, how peoples have suffered terribly. And I needed to write about torture and psychological warfare. And, but that people uh, have managed to resist. And the last chapter is the endings, how these guys fall. So it's, it's not a totally pessimistic book, but it, it also, you know, says we need to understand these impulses and take them seriously if we're going to get through this. Yeah, it's a fantastic book that really goes a long way towards helping us understand exactly what it is we're dealing with. By way of closing, how how can we participate in sort of turning back the tide of this rising uh, authoritarian tendency in the world? What do you think? I think that much depends on where you live. Um, but if you live in a place where, like the America, you still have rights. I mean, they're trying, of course, on the state level, trying to make protest a criminal act. And we all know what's, you know, trying to... Uh, get us to forget about the memory of uh, slavery. There's all kinds of things we all know are going on, but it's very, very important to use our, uh, to exercise our democratic rights to vote and to do nonviolent protest, um, which is a great engine of, of, of history. And, you know, it's really significant that the two largest protests in American history were the Women's March 2017 and then Black Lives Matter. And over 20 million people participated in Black Lives Matter events, which were multi-generational, multi-racial, um, was a true mass movement of protest. And so that that's very important. And then looking at, you know, the very, look at this inspiring uh, new protests in places that are, it's very difficult to protest like Iran or China. And in fact, 2019 was the record, a record year for protest around the world. So while we do uh, have the narrative, and it's true that authoritarianism is spreading, so is resistance to authoritarianism. And I'm planning to write more about that in the future. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Conspirituality Podcast. Your support and feedback is always very much appreciated. We'll see you back here on the feed.